Welcome back for part two of the way of innovation. Our guest is back to explain how we can adapt and thrive by recognizing, understanding, and utilizing the ancient Asian approach to innovation. During the last episode, he illustrated how companies can use this powerful wisdom and how we can pass through the five stages of innovation. The last day we covered metal and water. So metal is where you admit where you're stuck and admit that you're stuck in the first place. Water is imagination. It's when you conceive new winning options. Today, we're going to cover the last three phases. Wood, where you assemble your resources. Fire, where you break out your innovation. And earth, where you make it sustainable. Probably one of the most difficult phases to get through. Welcome back to the show, author of The Way of Innovation, Haihan Frippendorf. You're very welcome. Thank you, Aiden. So great to be back here and to see you again. It's great to be with you, man. And we've had a few episodes where we got together. We just end up talking. <laughs> we didn't record. Probably should have recorded them. I always think, should I stick a, a mic on in the background? They're always interesting. And I learned so much off mic from you as well. I'd like to hear a whole podcast of you just doing the uh, uh, banter uh, <laughs> before the recording. It's just a monologue, a monologue. And also, let's let's mention as well your Substack because you've set up a Substack. I'm a I'm a member, a paid subscriber to that Substack as well. Lots of value on there. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for recommending that to me. I started playing around with Substack, and I've had a group of people that are kind of more involved readers, kind of practitioners of my work, and um, I wanted to make an easy way for them to be part of a community. So I've been looking for that, and Substack seems like it could be. The perfect thing I would call it right now wood phase, and we'll see if it hits fire. And if not, there'll be another thing in the water phase that we'll put into wood. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, let's give an overview. And I just want to say as well, Kayan's an expert at coaching chief strategy officers. That's the whole idea of outthinker. Outthinker is about outthinking your competition. And with him and his team, they coach chief strategy officers. So if you are one or you know one, I highly recommend link in to Kaihan, find his website, kaihan.net, or go to Outthinker, or indeed join that Substack crew where you'll find a ton of value. And he has been collecting this knowledge for decades, literally. And even back further than that, centuries, which includes this ancient Asian wisdom that we're talking about today. I thought, Kaihan, we might give a brief recap of the five phases, just to get people back, maybe they've missed the first episode, just so they don't have to go back and listen back to go, what were they talking about again? Maybe we'll give a, a quick recap of those five phases, and then we'll get into wood. Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, I'll say uh, all my work, I believe, forget which French um, philosopher said this, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And so I find, I think that we're going to lay up these five phases. It's going to look a lot like other phases you're familiar with. You're familiar with an S-curve or something, or you're familiar with the three-box solution, or, you know, they're all like different frameworks to describe reality. It's just that this is a very old framework. This this was has been a, in development for a thousand years. We've been studying business strategy, business innovation for 50 years. So naturally, people who spent a thousand years studying something, they're likely to come up with a framework that is rich, and uh, and useful. So the five phases would be uh, metal. You realize you're stuck. Things have to change. Water. You start talking about what to do next, but that's just words. You're not actually 
changing anything. You're talking about possibilities, right? You're talking about what's my big area, audacious goal, what's my vision, what's our painted future, what, whatever those, all that other language around the language of what we could be doing. Wood is what we'll get into now is where you start launching something and it's not yet scaled. And we'll talk more about that, but that's that painful process where you, you don't know if, if, if it's going to work. Fire is when it takes off. Suddenly everyone gets it. The competition also gets it. And the pace of change really accelerates. Earth is, I have built my fortress. I now I'm going to protect my walls. I want the innovation to stop. That is the stable part. So you could think of it as an S-curve where wood is that lower part of the S-curve. Fire is the rising. Earth is the flattening, right? Metal then becomes the decline. And water is the discussion of what that next S-curve might be. So if we want to map it to the S-curve, that's a way to map it. Let's jump into Wood. I'm going to tee you up here with a beautiful quote. And again, the book draws on this ancient wisdom from Lao Tzu to Sun Tzu. And in particular here, I'm going to point out something Sun Tzu said, that power comes from formation. In this phase, the Wood phase, the innovator must grow wood and bend it into a bow. As the bow is pulled, potential energy is harnessed. But this phase requires dedication and faith because progress can be excruciatingly slow. We know that those people who work in this role, even as it stretches itself into a giant oak, the sapling st seems still. Similarly, all innovations enter a phase in which, in which effort overshadows results. When a leader must gather resources, convince others to believe in a future and warn against slipping back into complacency before the organization is ready to unleash its new strategy and seize a new future. I absolutely love that. This is the wood phase. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most, uh, the most frustrating phase, but it's the phase where in most demands your belief and not belief in the visible outcomes of your work, but your belief in that you're putting the right things in place. Um, for example, just to like link it to kind of a more kind of accessible innovation uh, principle, you know, when you're pre-revenue, you don't want to be measuring revenue of, as your success. You're looking instead at the pipeline. What is your success rate in getting people through the pipeline or what's your customer acquisition cost for the few customers you have? And can you get the customer acquisition costs down? So you're looking at these kind of leading indicators, as Rita McGrath would say, internal leading. And those leading indicators tell you that, okay, this is okay. But externally, people are saying, hey, you're not selling anything. You know, you don't have customers. And um, it, is, it is like wood in that you can't see a tree growing, but you know the tree's growing. But there's a lot going on inside the tree, but you don't see the outside um, uh, activity. And so, um, yes, yeah, so that that's that's where you are in in the wood phase. And so, um, it is a place where a lot of people give up. I think Seth Godin wrote a great book, The Dip, that point where we give up. It is the Michael Moore's chasm. It is that point before you've crossed the chasm before people get it. The early adopters and the later adopters sandwich the the the. the the bulk of the adopters in the middle. So many different ways of saying that. I just said it like five or six different ways. But you see that's universal. We just described it 
in with different metaphors, different language, and this invites you to use wood as the as a metaphor. It's a very helpful metaphor. So let's give an example and one that I'm grateful to say none of us are familiar with these days, <laughs> but one that was very common in the 15th and 16th centuries. And this is when scurvy regularly killed large numbers of sailors and you go, well, that's because they were in the wood phase and they couldn't see the solution was right there in front of them. James Lancaster was a captain of the British Navy and he conducted an experiment and he had one ship that was called the lemon ship, the other one that didn't have a lemon ship. And the uh, lemon ship, he gave two teaspoons, I believe, of lemon juice to sailors every day. And they didn't die of scurvy, where they very little uh, kind of instance of scurvy. In fact, de- halfway down the, 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 the journey, down the, um, the, you know, de- down the Horn of Africa, up to the Spice Islands, so many people had died on the scurvy ship that he couldn't operate anymore. He had to convince some people to move over from the lemon ship to the non-lemon ship. I don't know how, how he convinced them. But he came back to the British Navy because I've got this innovation. Let me, I've proven it. It's inexpensive, it's valuable, and it's easy to implement. Uh, inexpensive, we're talking about two buckets of lemons. It is easy to implement because all I do is change the regulations and everyone in the British Navy follows the regulations. Whatever the rule book says, that's what you follow. Just change that. And it saves lives, it saves commerce. But it did take the Navy 250 years to adopt this. You know, and the lesson there is there is the social side. Just because you've got the best iPhone, you've got the best device, you've got the best invention, you've got the best solution, it doesn't mean that it... And, and, and if we say innovation is, and, and many, sort of many people say it has to be fresh and new, it has to be adopted, and it has to be valuable. Like um, Steve Jobs says, innovation is creativity that ships. You can come up with something really creative, but if it doesn't ship and others, if people don't adopt it, people don't buy it, then it does not count as an innovation. So it's not yet an innovation in by that definition. So it t- takes a while. It takes a while for people to say, aha, yes, that is a great invention. I want to get it. I want to use it. I want to share it. You talked about something so important here, and it's been written about by examples like, for example, Ron Adner, we have on the show, The Wide Lens, for example, and that you're not, it's not just about convincing, for example, people in your company to adopt the idea or users like the sailors here to adopt the lemon juice solution. You talk about the latent resistance in three certain networks, the organization, the partners and the users themselves. I think this is worth talking to in the wood phase. Yeah, you you kind of have to get adoption across these three different systems, and you can almost think of them as like concentric circles. You have your organization. Inside that organization, which at this point in the book we've already covered, you have yourself, you have your team, and then you have your organization. So you have to get your organization to believe. Outside of the organization, you have your partners who also need to believe. These are the distribution partners, and these are suppliers, these are complements, and you have to get users to um to, to also believe. You have to, to like flip them from not believing to believing. And so it is a three front battle that you need to need to manage. Uh, and in all of those phases and for all of those systems, what you see it's um it's mostly about the language that you use to have people shift either um, their beliefs um, or their logic. There are different things that we need that we can use that are um, need to be flipped for 
the agents in each of those systems to say, yes, that's a great innovation. I'm going to use that. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to support it. I'm going to supply it. I'm going to fund it. The book doesn't just present your views of solutions, the ancient models, et cetera, but it actually has a whole part of the book that has both case studies and then some tools that you can use as well. And in here, there's a simple table that you use that you can, it's almost like a checklist. Have you done these to unlock resistance and build resonance for your innovation? So we're going to share on the screen that table, and I'd love you to pick maybe a couple of them because one of the most important things, as you say here, is the language, that you find language that connects. And I know this builds on work that you mentioned in the last episode that came from your experience with your dad and working on his courses as well. But I'll share this and please take us through it. There's so many examples of where the innovation confronts beliefs. Maybe the most dramatic one is Copernicus, who proposed that the Earth maybe goes around the sun rather than vice versa. And he had evidence to show this so that you could believe it. But to believe that would be to also give up a belief that Earth and therefore humans are the center of the universe. And we have a whole system of religions grounded in this belief. And we get asked people to choose one belief over another. They, we often want to hold on to the beliefs that we already hold. So being able to untangle the beliefs, Martin Luther King did a brilliant job of that. Um, and if you look at his I Have a Dream speech, you can break it down. You can see that what he did was he said, yes, we know you believe this, but we also know that you believe this. You believe that a bank, when they write a check, that check should be able to be cashed. And you wrote us a check and the check is not cashed. So he evokes a belief that is consistent with believing his innovation that then have people say, you are right. This is consistent with my beliefs. So playing around, understanding beliefs is, is a big one. Um, logic is sort of related to beliefs where you have multiple beliefs that are dependent on each other. And so being able to untangle these things um, and understand kind of what's the house of cards of, belief, of, of beliefs that form the logic and then providing a different logic, being able to loosen their logic and then give them a new logic. Logic is not a very good method for convincing people of new things. Usually you need to get them to want to believe the new thing for other maybe more emotional reasons. But in order for them to, to have, you know, continue believing the new belief, we want to give them logic to give them the confidence that, yeah, this is a logical new belief. You have accountabilities, so people have different accountabilities. They're accountable to um, friends and family, other individuals. They have accountabilities to an organization. Maybe their role has them, you know, feel that they have an accountability of certain types. They have societal um, um, accountabilities. Sometimes those societal accountabilities are, are 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 beliefs of who my identity is, and if I were to believe you, now I'm not now I'm not going to believe these other people that I'm accountable to, and I'm no longer part of that society. So understanding that. Um, distinctions are kind of like a way of framing things, you know, calling something up or down um, uh, versus left or right. If you look in kind of political debates, you'll see framing is one of the main uh, battlefronts uh, of the, the competing ideas. Stories or narratives are certainly really powerful. And a lot of my work, which when we talk about I'll think the competition, um, we'll cover. We also talked about it in um, uh, The Art of the Advantage and Heidi Dagger Behind a Smile, but 
you know, the people live in stories and they think that what happened in the past is going to result in what is going to happen before. That's one of the reasons that successful innovators are often successful again, in part because people say, oh, Aiden did this and it resulted in that. He represents this narrative. He's going to do the same thing again, so he's going to be successful as well. So thinking about the, the stories and re-engineering re, um, the stories. Um, metaphors, metaphors are really powerful ways to transmit information. And often the metaphor that people are living in isn't one that they're very conscious of. If you listen to some of like, you hear great, great orators, they will be very careful in their word choices. Again, if we go back to Martin Luther King, he evokes this bank. He evokes the mountaintops. He invokes the fields, he invokes the water and island, and it does is it triggers in the listener, it evokes certain metaphors that are helpful to the innovator's um, innovation. Uh, For example, um, cloud computing, I think we talked about this before, Uh, salesforce.com talking about not, not software for a long time, but people didn't really understand it. But then when someone introduced a metaphor of the cloud, it made sense for people. And so cloud computing really hit the fire phase and took off, but it took the introduction of a metaphor. Then finally, you have incentives, which are a little bit more straightforward. So what you can do then is you can look through each of these for the organization, for the partners, for the users, what are the beliefs, logic, accountabilities, the distinctions, the stories, the metaphors, the incentives, where do we have a conflict with existing beliefs, logic, accountabilities, et cetera? and then look at how I can use language to dislodge and then open up. And if we look at, you know, what, you know what they say about Steve Jobs, right? That he was, uh, he had a reality distortion field around him. They say the same thing about Elon Musk. These innovators are really good naturally at understanding and shaping these um, sets of, um, of language tools, I would say. So we've got the support. We're at that stage. We've got the support. Many of us fail before that happens or we think we have the support and sometimes the very people that we think will support us the most stab us in the back and this can be for a wide range of uh, reasons but in the rare and they are rare cases that we make it through we reach the fire stage and as you say here once an innovation has assembled its formation and attracted key supporters it will cross into a tipping point it will cross its tipping point at which it has attracted the critical mass needed to begin self-generating. Then the innovation is on fire. People switch sides and want to be part of this new wave of change. The competition, which once discounted the innovation, now takes notice and responds. This phase, as you say, like fire itself, is characterized by disorder and speed. Managing the phase requires an approach different from the patience the wood phase demanded. That's really, really important. It requires speed, creativity, and a careful calculation of competitive behavior. For those with this skill to succeed through the breakout, the opportunity exists to stay on top. Beautiful setup for a fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's that moment where to go back to the adoption curve, um, because that's maybe the model that many listeners would be most familiar with. The moment where your early adopters and your um, would-be 
uh, detractors are get converted, and now we have the the tail, the two tails of the adoption curve. And the idea is, if you just work on the two tails, the middle will go along. So we, you know, we reduce the impact of the uh, laggards, the naysayers, and we amplify the impact of the early adopters and advocates, and then the middle people go along. So there's this moment where it collapses, and it's usually pretty fast where people suddenly get it. But then what happens is also the competition gets it, and we suddenly are dealing with active uh, competitors, people who want to stop us, who want to copy us, who want to resist us, right? And so what you see is that, yeah, the pace of change suddenly accelerates. I think at this chapter, I, I draw most of it from the theory of a gentleman named John Boyd, who was a fighter pilot. So he had a running bet that within a short period of time, if he got in the air with you, he'd have you locked in his sights. And I could go into the other kind of uh, results that he's had, but maybe the arguably the greatest trainer of fighter pilots in the history of modern air warfare. And and when he retired, they asked him to come up with this theory. And he came up with a theory. It's actually quite complex, but you can simplify it into UDA. Observe, orient, decide, and act. You observe your environment, orient yourself to what's happening, make a decision, take action on that decision, and you want to do that really fast. So one thing that is important in the fire phase, typically, is whereas before your opponents didn't see what you were doing. They didn't understand, oh, they're building this capability. They've acquired this thing. They've licensed this technology. They've made this partnership. They don't yet see the formation phase isn't yet evident right? So we don't really see what's happening. Now they see what's happening. They get the picture. And now every time you move, they want to stop you. So one thing to do is to get inside their decision cycle, to get go through, observe, orient, decide, and act faster than them. Um, you also want to postpone that initial response as long as possible. So you would like the fire to kick off if, 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 your, if your audience can, can get it and you can get to fire with people before your, uh, before your competitors do. That's a great thing, you know. And 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 you know, you know, look at look at Netflix and look at um, uh, Google. You know, the you know the, the innovations that we often talk about. What you see is they do they do postpone the fire phase because the opponent they could have you know they 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 could have reacted but they didn't. So that's an important thing to try to to put in place. You're shifting from strategy to tactics very fast moving. You're you're now you know the di difference in in between strategy and tactics and warfare is that strategy is what does what you do before you have you're on the battlefield tactics are what happens when you're in front of the enemy now you're in front of the enemy uh and so other things happen you're playing these moral games these mental games um you are continuing to use that disbelief but you're trying to use it to your benefit if you can make customers believe it but competitors don't believe it right uh and you just need to be have a lot of unorthodox tactics like uh, coming up with, like lots of different things um and as you're growing it because it's a new innovation it's not you're not selling into a segment or a channel that maybe is very established and no one really knows how that's going to develop it's so important that phase and i think that it's something that is not spoken about enough that keep it quiet keep below the radar in john boyd speak you don't want people looking in your direction you definitely don't want big competitors and it, it's a kind of a dilemma isn't it for a lot of startups and scale-ups because 
they might want the end game to be acquired by one of those bigger players and they might try to go to all these conferences, talk about the product, etc. But you got to go, not yet, not yet. And there's a there's a great quote by Machiavelli you offer here that I hadn't heard before. I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant quote. Machiavelli wrote, no enterprise is more likely to succeed than one concealed from the enemy until it's ripe for execution. I love that, man. That's genius quote. And you use that as a way to tee up two examples. And please take us through both if you have time or just one that you might prefer. There are the examples of Under Armour, which people may not have known. I didn't before I read it in your book. And I had heard about Gatorade, but not in the guise of this, which is a brilliant way of explaining it. Yeah, I think uh, Gatorade, as an example, I'll, I'll do that one because I, I moved to Florida recently and Gatorade came from Florida. It's named Gatorade because it came from the team, University of Florida, and their mascot is called the Gators. So that's what they call it Gatorade. And there were some scientists, professors, who had this idea that if we could give electrolytes to players that they could uh, out, they could perform better. So they, they came up with this really disgusting tasting salty drink. And as a test, not unlike the lemons of the on the on of, of, of James Lancaster, they ran a test. They gave this salty water to the JV, the junior varsity team, when they were practicing against the varsity team. The junior varsity team are the you know, not not the players that aren't good enough yet to play. So they typically lose, but they won that game by a lot. And so they had a clue, like, this is going to work. And they start off, they're not even trying to make it a business. All they want to do is give their Florida Gators an advantage. So this is exclusively a special thing just for the players of that team. So when they're playing other teams, they have this advantage. And... Intentionally or not, they do several things that obfuscate their growth from the attention of opponents. They don't distribute this, for example, through grocery stores or retail. They distribute it through a network onto soccer fields or, or, or football fields, right? Um, and as they're growing and growing... The Pepsi and Coke are watching them grow, but they don't have their market share reports. There's no line item for sports drinks. So going back to the mental side of the game, there is no category in their mind for them to notice that this is a competitor. And so they're very slow to respond. And by the time Pepsi and Coke wake up and say, hey, wait a second, this is a new category forming. It's already too late. Gatorade dominates that category. I believe they're now owned by Pepsi, but Pepsi could have bought them for a lot less, could have made a competitor, and they're still the number one brand in the category. That is an example of finding ways to preempt competitive response. Also, as you point out, and you give great examples later on about Walmart, for example, versus Sears, is that you build com this capability while the others are looking that way and they're they're in, embroiled in tactics and you're quietly building this new capability, usually in a different way. And it's that different capability that often becomes your strength because they can't match you and they definitely can't do it quickly. But now at this stage, and we're on earth at this stage, you're 
at this point where you've succeeded, you have a successful organization, you have a successful line item, you have re re recurring reliable revenue. And you know what this is like, Kayan. You work with organizations like this all the time that are kind of going, but we're, what do we do? We, we don't have competitors. We're succeeding. We don't need, there's no sense of urgency. And the, it always sounds like they're in the earth phase at this stage. And you say here, your innovation will eventually mature and become like earth, stable, consistent, reliable. With the battle over, you have time to erect walls and prolong a period of peace. What made you successful through the breakout phase will not be what keeps you successful during maturity. Before you relied on speed and on shrewdly managed competition. At maturity, however, you no longer enjoy the benefits of being small and fast. This is where the bureaucracy and your size gets in your way. Your continued success depends on consistency rather than unpredictability. Your competitors now take their time to plan new strategies and attracted by your success are more willing than ever before to change their practices to win. This is such a difficult phase and probably the majority of work we do as consultants is with companies in this phase. Yeah, a lot of the strategy work it was designed for companies like this, right? Like if we look at Michael Porter's model, uh, with the exception of new entrants and substitutes, the, his his drivers are drivers that um, are the most appropriate to the incumbents, to larger companies. So um, you can think of it, this isn't my metaphor, but I borrowed it from someone else who borrowed it from someone else, Rob Walcott, who I borrowed, who borrowed it from someone else. And, but I find it really, really resonates is the fortress of the ship. That you have a fortress, you have a ship, and your fortress is your core business, and you want to be building the walls around your fortress to protect your core. And your ship is ships out going out looking for new territory. Now, we've refined that a little bit more with this five-step model, right, in that your earth is your fortress, and you have metal tearing down the fortress, and then you have wood, fire, earth as your ship. But let's just simplify it. We don't want to just be out in the ocean because we might not have a home to come back to. We need to protect the innovation. And usually the innovator wants innovation to stop. Three primary sources that companies look at for this phase to protect their core. And if you want to read more about it, my favorite book on this is Bruce Greenwald, Competition Demystified. He was one of my professors at Columbia Business School. They call him the the guru to value investing gurus. So Warren Buffett, he he calls Bruce Greenwald when he has a question. He's like the academic study of these value investors. And he'll break it down really simple. It says three things, preferential access to resources, customer captivity, or economies with scale. So economies of scale is super easy. We've got scale so we can have a factory that's bigger than yours, or we can occupy more market share and not leave enough market share for you. So because we're producing more of them, we can produce them at a lower marginal cost. Or we've built we built something and now we can use it over and over and over and over again. And we own the machinery and we can we can we can run it, you know, to full capacity. So economies of scale. That's that's sort of straightforward, right? Customer captivity is um we, we were talking about this before. You get an Apple computer uh, 
on an iPhone and all of a sudden all of your all of your photos are on iPhone all your music is on is is you know and then you have your apps and then your apps and then you've got passwords they kill me because I use my iPhone strong password instead of trying to remember one and now if I'm not if, if I were to try to switch to an Android I don't know if I could transfer all those passwords so they've got me so Customer captivity, making it undesirable or difficult for customers to leave you. This could be raising switching costs would be one term that you know people would be familiar with. Um, certainly customer satisfaction is great. That's what we you know, feel like they should be. So customer captivity. And the last one, preferential access to resources. This is what in, in strategic terms they call the resource-based view. Um, from around the 1970s, that's where the strategy shifted to looking at resources because you find that companies that have very similar products and distribution capabilities up one of them would win why because they own some critical input they own the diamond mines they own the oil they own the ip and they own a brand they've got access to something and you want to compete with me you can't get that because i control it so if you can get one of those that'll help you get through earth or hold on to earth so that's what's get through you want to hold on to earth as long as possible um, but if you can find two or three of them, then that's even better. If you look at what Warren Buffett invests in, you can look at, he invests in companies that have two, preferably all three of those in place. I think the best example we all know is Apple. And also because we see the success trillion dollar, first trillion dollar, then two trillion dollar company. And we all have fallen victim to that. I mean, like they have air tags now, you know, those little tags, everything like, and constantly like just pushing the envelope and stuff. And also I, I often think about them like they have sustaining innovations like like how good can the iPhone get? I mean, it's it's an amazing phone as it was as a 14, now it's a 15, et cetera, et cetera. And they look at the entire ecosystem and I'd love you to share this and maybe some other examples you might have of a company that looks at everything from logistics. How do I get my product to you? How do I build this the most uh, powerful way how do I also have such a powerful brand that now can become a car or it can become Apple housing, whatever we might be, and people love the brand? You know, the one that I, did, I didn't write about it in the book, but that is sort of the one that comes, I think, most frequently to mind is Amazon. And if we look at Amazon's innovations from a very early on, so if you look at Apple's innovations, they don't extend beyond the product much for the first 20 or 30 years, and then they start scaling. Amazon is looking to build walls around its business across lots of different dimensions of business very early on. Um, the pri pricing, for example, with Amazon Prime pricing, um, when they lost the tax advantage that allowed them to ship across U.S. states without charging taxes. Then suddenly they opened up distribution centers outside of every major city. So they want to get their products to you faster. Um, and you look at how they build their products. They build one product to form an advantage for the next product. So you start with books. Then from books, you go to CDs and things like that. They're similar to books. And then from there, you go to other products and then you go to marketplaces and services. Why do they, why do they invest so much in uh, Amazon Alexa and smart, um, you know, smart speakers, right? They want to be in your house. And so they make it really easy for you to just say, Hey, Alexa, buy this for me. So you, they are surrounding us um, 
in solidifying their position and using one position to to take another. You know, but uh, Disney uh, you know, did the same thing. They start off with um, they start off with uh, characters. The characters become brands that they own. Resource based view. They use those to create movies. The movies audience customer captivity. They audience and the brands that we could go into theme parks and the way we, the way they bought the land for the original orlando theme park was was very clever they assembled all this and then now nobody has as much contingent land as them so they're very clever in taking these metal water wood fire earths and then using those to combine them to create the next one and just keep building their fortress so I have one last question for you, man, because this book, by the way, we have not got near the amount of examples. There's amazing examples in there and examples that you you don't hear that often, which I loved what you did as well. So you took this lens of this ancient wisdom and applied it to stuff you were studying in college at the time, stuff you were studying as a consultant in your early days. There's examples in there from Phillips and the CD-ROM and how they got you know undermined by overseas competitors, etc. And I witnessed that. I remember actually just even tape recorders and stuff like that and Philips. And then there was like cheaper brands that you'd never heard of, et cetera. And you're kind of a young kid. You're like kind of going, it doesn't make sense to be paying that price when you can pay this price. And it's the same product. So all those great examples are in there. But I, I thought for one example that often, or one question that often comes up whenever I'm giving keynotes or giving workshops is, we're at the earth phase how can I instill a sense of urgency within my company? I'm working in innovation. I'm working in maybe strategy. And the leadership team are so focused on tactics, on execution, that they have stopped exploration, if they did at all, because maybe they inherited the successful organization and they don't need to. They have that luxury. But how do you instill that sense of urgency that, look, it's not going to always be like this as our friend Rita McGrath would say it's a transient advantage. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I think when we talk about Outthink the Competition, we'll also talk a little bit about this, that I always begin my strategy sessions with a discussion of the mess. Um, so 50% of people are motivated by moving towards things and 50% of people are motivated by moving away from things. If we look at neuro-linguistic programming, um, that's one kind of principle. So you always want to give people, when you're speaking, when you're giving your speech, you want to be giving the... I, I like giving the positive stuff. Like, imagine what's possible, but that doesn't work with half people. Half people are motivated by being away from things. So creating that, you know, in change land, they call the burning platform, the sense of urgency, you know. And so a really hap uh, practical, easy thing to do is to just create time for the mess discussion. So that'd be like 30 minutes for the leadership team and just say, what would happen if we continue under our current path? And these other CD-ROM copycats keep coming in and starts driving down the price and there's no differentiation between our product and the next one. So we try to come up with the next the product, but then we come up with another one and another product, another product. And, and so then we confuse and then get people to play that out and then elevate it and say, well, why does that matter? And why does that matter? And often when you uh, ladder up to these higher order, uh, higher order um, implications, it's something like, Ultimately, what, why does the world need us as a company? What's our purpose here? What would life be like without us as a company? Which then leads to the, the people you serve, the societies you serve, and it can move people to like a really like existential experience of 
this matters, you know? And it's in that state of discontent. And, and, and you would also say, it's like, you know, it's the future, we don't know what the future is, right? There are thousands of futures, but a possible future that we want to avoid is this, is this, is this future. And that gets people to think about um, metal and think about what we need to stop doing. We have so much more to talk about, and Kayan's going to join us again. So we've we've finished this. By the way, as I said, we probably covered ten pages of it. So I, it's very very difficult to distill literally thousands of years of ancient wisdom <laughs> into a couple of hours. So that's the way of innovation. So we're gonna we're gonna put that one to to bed for the moment. And next up, we're going to cover outthink the competition. I have a copy of outthink up for grabs for those people who joined the innovation show Substack, which is the Thursday thought on Substack. You can find us there. And people who are paid subscribers, you have three times the chance, the opportunity to win uh, a copy of that. You'll have three entries as opposed to normal entrance. And that's next up on the on the on the slate. And then we're going to cover a final book which is driving innovation from within. And that's a, a magnificent read as well. And that's actually where I first had heard about you, Kaihan. And I went back into your back catalog and absolutely enjoyed it. So glad I did. And so thankful to you for your time as well. Final question is, for people, I said it to you earlier on, I said it at the start of the show, but where can people find you? Where's the best place? If you just remember, kaihan.net, K-A-I-H-A-N.net. And from there, you could subscribe to my newsletter, Substack, get content, and uh, and get in touch with me. Author of The Way of Innovation, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.